Seeing God or Being Seen by God, by Rav Eliakim Krumbein. Our parasha concludes with the mitzvah of Aliyah Regel, the obligatory pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year. This mitzvah is repeated several times throughout Chumash, each time with a similar expression. Three times a year all your males shall be seen before the Lord your God. As in our parasha, this verse closes the discussion of the festivals in both parashat Mishpatim and parashat Kitisa. However, one view in Chazal points to yet another instance in Chumash where this mitzvah is introduced, in a context seemingly unrelated to the festivals. Towards the end of Parashat Mishpatim, Moshe conducts the ceremony of the covenant between God and Bnei Israel at Mount Sinai. As part of this ceremony, we are told, he designated some young men among the Israelites, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as offerings of well-being to God. The Gemara presents two views as to the identity of these burnt offerings. One opinion associates this sacrifice with the Korban Tamid, the daily offering brought each morning and afternoon, while the other view identifies this burnt offering as an Olat Re'iyah. The Olat Re'iyah is the sacrifice required of every pilgrim to the temple on the festivals, in accordance with the dictum, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. The obvious question to be asked of this latter view is, how could one bring a pilgrimage offering during a time other than a festival? Rashi, in his comments to that Gemaran Chagiga, explains the second opinion. Although this occasion was not one of the required pilgrimages to the temple, the offering of an olat re'iyah was nevertheless warranted, since this experience too involved re'iyah, beholding. And they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there was the likeness of a pavement of sapphire. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. Rashi's interpretation, however, seems quite difficult. A clear distinction exists between the beholding during the festivals, which involves the people's being seen by the Almighty, and that of Mount Sinai, where the people beheld God, as it were. The question then remains, why do Chazal relate these two sacrifices with one another? This enigmatic passage in the Gemara calls our attention to the unusual wording of this mitzvah. The verse literally reads, All your males shall be seen the face of God. Yera'eh kol zechurcha et p'nei Hashem. Yera'eh is in the nif'al construction, which does not jibe with the et following it. Seeing the face of God would read, Yir'eh et p'nei Hashem, and being seen before God would read, Yera'eh lifnei Hashem. But what is meant by Yera'eh et p'nei Hashem? Shall be seen the face of God. Similar to the events at Mount Sinai, there are other instances in Chumash where God's face is said to have been seen. In Parashat Vayishlach, Yaakov proclaims after his wrestling with the angel, I have seen God face to face, and later tells Esav, For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. This concept appears in one other context in Chumash, namely Akedat Yitzchak. Avraham named that site Hashem Yir'eh, literally God will see, whence the present saying, On the mount of the Lord he will be seen. Here, for the first time, we find the concept of seeing in the context of the temple site, and furthermore, the relationship or perhaps play on words between the object and subject, the one who sees and the one who is seen. The seeing in the beginning of the verse, Avraham's name for the mountain, God will see, is clearly a reference to his earlier remark to his son, God will see to the sheep for his burnt offering. Most likely, as Raviel bin Nun posits, the verb ri'iyah in the story of the Akedah denotes choosing and selecting, rather than seeing. God chooses a sacrifice, Yitzchak, and now God chooses that spot as the location for his sacrifices.
Thus, Hashem Yireh constitutes both a parallel and a precedent to the term, the place that God will choose, which appears numerous times in our parasha. However, what is meant by the end of the verse, whence the present saying, on the mount of the Lord he will be seen? At first glance, this verse seems to prophesy about a later period, when the people will ascend the mount of the Lord in order to be seen thereupon, and thus the pronoun is he, with a lowercase, referring to man. The problem is that nowhere in this verse is the subject, the person, mentioned. Thus it seems like the one being seen in this verse is none other than the Almighty himself. He, with a capital H, will be seen. Indeed, this is how Rashi, as well as many other commentators, interpret the verse, the mountain about which the people of all generations will say, on this mountain God appears to his nation. This verse, then, sheds light on the grammatical enigma of our phrase, all your males shall be seen the face of God. This phrase implies both seeing as well as being seen. God does not only see man, but he is seen by man as well. He reveals himself to man and thus is seen here on this mountain. If we continue along the lines of Raviel ben Nun's approach cited above, then we may conclude that the temple is the place for the renewal of God's choosing of his nation. We are seen, or in other words, chosen by him, and for our choosing of God. As such, the end of the parasha directly relates to its opening. See, this day I set before you blessing and curse, which seems to allude to a later verse in Sefer Dvarim. I have put before you life and death, blessing and curse, and you shall choose life. The triennial pilgrimage to the temple constitutes a renewal of the bond between and mutual selection of Am Yisrael and their father in heaven. Another basis may be suggested as well for the peculiar expression, be seen the face of God. The very concept of seeing God poses a serious theological problem, as God possesses no visible form. The expression, shall be seen the face of God, may very well express the hesitation of the Torah, as well as the student, with regard to the institution of pilgrimage, the sacrifices offered, and the festive celebrations associated therewith. Such festivities in the presence of God may result in a certain irreverence towards God. Unquestionably, the experience of they beheld God and they ate and drank poses great danger. The Torah therefore substitutes Yir'eh, shall see God, with Yir'eh, will be seen. Similarly, elsewhere in our parasha, the Torah makes a point of entrenching within us the concept of Yir'ah, fear of God, within the context of pilgrimage to the temple. You shall consume there in the presence of the Lord your God, in the place where he will choose to establish his name, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God forever. The Image of the Jewish King According to the Torah by Rav Eliakim Krumbein When conceiving the function of the king, one would expect that his primary function would be to tend to issues of national concern. The Rambam presents the Jewish monarch's job description thus, from the outset, a king is crowned only to carry out justice and war. As it states, let our king serve as judge over us, and go out at our head and fight our battles. Earlier in Hilchot Melachim, however, the Rambam offers a different illustration of the life of the king. It is forbidden for a king to drink in an intoxicating manner. As it states, wine is not for kings to drink. Rather, he should be occupied with Torah and the needs of Israel day and night. As it states, let it remain with him, and let him read in it all his life. Here the Rambam introduces an additional element of the king's role, to study Torah. 
Although the king is appointed to deal with national concerns, diligent Torah study must accompany his work on behalf of the country. Despite the vastness of his responsibilities toward the people, the weight of the entire nation resting upon his shoulders, he must nevertheless ensure the ongoing cultivation of his inner spiritual self, maintain the purity of his heart, and engage in serious Torah study. Remarkably, the Torah mentions nothing of national responsibility throughout its legislation regarding the Jewish monarch in our parasha. Instead, the Torah stresses the king's responsibility to maintain strict spiritual standards. At the conclusion of this section, the Torah presents the rationale for a series of laws regulating the king's conduct, which include the prohibitions against excessive wealth and an excessive number of wives, as well as the king's obligation to read the Torah regularly. Thus, he will not act haughtily. The Torah seems to pay particular attention to the king's obligation to write a Torah scroll and to study it throughout his life. Are we to understand this mitzvah simply as a means to avoid the moral corruption endemic to positions of authority? If this were the underlying purpose of these regulations, then it would be sufficient for the king to possess and make use of an old Torah scroll, perhaps one inherited from his predecessors. But Chazal insists that the king must write his own scroll, a requirement codified by the Rambam. Apparently the Torah demands more than mere resistance to the temptation of royal corruption, the king must invest creative energy into his spiritual life. Imagine if a high-ranking public official today would take out time from his schedule on a regular basis to spend hours in the temple engrossed in religious contemplation. For several hours he would ignore the burning issues and dire problems facing his constituency and focus on his own spirituality. Undoubtedly such a politician would be scorned and accused of indifference and insensitivity to the public. A truly responsible leader would never bring himself to waste time in such a manner. The Rambam, however, reacts differently to such a statesman. The Torah was insistent with regard to his heart turning away, as it states, lest his heart go astray, for his heart is the heart of the entire congregation of Israel. Therefore the verse attached him to the Torah more so than the rest of the nation, as it states, let him read in it all his life. Thus, the strict standards demanded of the king evolve not only out of the Torah's concern for the likelihood of arrogance on the king's part. Rather, these guidelines relate to the Torah's view of the king's soul as equivalent to that of the entire people. He is devoted to the concerns of the nation at large and focuses on his obligations in this regard. Specifically due to his stature as leader, he must serve as a shining example of a life of faith. The foundation of such a life is the recognition that the resolutions to life's crises certainly require effort and exertion on the practical level, but when all is said and done, everything depends on absolute moral rectitude. The king may not give the mistaken impression that the generation's problems can be addressed adequately without concern for ethical standards and service of God. Not coincidentally, the ideal image of the Jewish monarch is that of King David. He was unparalleled in the number of enemies who threatened him, and crises from which he suffered, but he was also unmatched in his keen, vibrant, and constant spiritual awareness. Moreover, he possessed a supreme sense of the existential relationship between the two, the link between crisis and faith. In this sense, the parasha of the Jewish king bears a critical message for every Jew. Like the king in Parashat Shoftim, each of us must remember that even in times of distress and challenge, ethical standards remain the central problem in life. One's primary concern must be, as King David put it so poignantly, One thing I ask of the Lord, only that do I seek, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, engrossed in Torah, service of God, and acts of kindness. But regarding other problems that arise, after the appropriate effort is exerted, 
one must sense that the Lord is my light and my help. Whom shall I fear?